0: Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Because you have the power
1: of second sight. I don't know whether it's true or not, these psychic powers of yours. No, I'm at my wits' end, John. I could use your help. It has to do with these murders we've been having A Castle Rock killer.
0: I saw his face. Just thought uh, i stop by here on my way to the U.S. Senate. Greg
1: Stilson. He's dangerous. If you could go back in time before Hitler came to power, knowing what you know now, would you kill him? I would kill him. You'd never get away alive. It doesn't matter. I'm not crazy, you know. Those headaches are getting worse, aren't they? As the visions grow stronger and more powerful, the body weakens. God has seen fit bless you with this gift, you should use it. Bless me! Not only can you see the future, I can change
0: it. Welcome to another installment to my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of March, we're honoring none other than the Master of Body Horror himself, David Cronenberg. And today's episode highlights The Dead Zone, one of Cronenberg's most effects-restrained films, though this restraint allows its character-driven and world-building to thrive in a way that few of Cronenberg's 80s films did. Adapted from the Stephen King novel of the same name by screenplay writer Jeffrey Boehm and produced by Deborah Hill, The Dead Zone stars Christopher Walken as Johnny Smith, a schoolteacher who falls into a coma after a terrible car crash only to awake five years later with the psychic ability that allows him to see into people's future just from simply touching them. Now, as Johnny attempts to acclimate to life and his powers, he has a vision of a politician who will bring about the end of the world. And joining me once again is writer and returning friend of the show, Patrick Brennan, whose work you can find at clippings.me slash Patrick Brennan, and you can follow him on Twitter at pbrennan87. So without further ado, here's our chat on the Dead Zone. Pat, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for uh, having me back. No problem. I'm excited to talk to you about uh, The Dead Zone. Uh, this is a movie that I have only just recently gotten a better appreciation for. It's one that I had seen a handful of years ago for the first time, kind of just came and went for me. And then within the last year, I think I've probably rewatched this now about three times. And it it's really one of those movies that I keep getting a better appreciation for every single time I revisit it. Um, so I'm really excited to talk with you about it today.
1: Yeah, same, and very much the same. What you're saying there, like I, I find this, uh, this movie. I, I watched it for the first time, I think, back in in university, like second year of university, and then, uh, probably not to age myself, but then a uh, a decade later, I <laughs> watched it uh, again, and and uh, I've watched it like three times in the last two months, and it just keeps getting better each each, each viewing. I think it's a real dark horse for, uh, for one of my favorite Cronenberg um, films now.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and what really stands out to me is just how different it feels from a lot of his movies, especially in the 80s, right? It feels Hmm. very restrained in terms of that time period, specifically in his filmography. I mean, he usually has this emphasis on like practical effects driven body horror, which of course we've gotten some of the, for me, some of my favorite horror films of all time, things like Videodrome or The Fly, and yet just because The Dead Zone doesn't have a similar approach, I find that my appreciation for it grows because of how character driven focused it is, and how he does. There's a real attention to world building in this film that Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think a lot of movies from that period, perhaps, or his earlier films necessarily Mm -hmm. hit that mark for me. Um, So I'm really excited to kind of dig deeper into uh, the Dead Zone. But before we kind of dive too much into the film, I'm curious, what is your kind of like Cronenberg origin story? Do you remember your first uh, introduction to his work? Um, yeah,
1: I actually, strangely enough, it wasn't anything that he directed. The, the first time I like, saw his name was when I watched uh, Nightbreed for the first time, mm. um, where he plays the villain um, mm-hmm. wonderfully to Decker, I think is the, the psychiatrist's yep. name. Um, scared the hell out of me. I remember picking up the VHS at a yard sale. It still has one of my favorite uh, VHS covers of all time, and yeah, I, I remember thinking he was absolutely chilling. And then finding mm. out, oh, he was—he's uh, a director, and he's a director from my country, which is really cool. We like finding out that because uh, I'm from Canada, and finding out that we have uh, a horror director who's considered a legend is <laughs> was kind of a nice thing to find out when I was—I think I was about ten at the time. And then I just kind of dived into his, uh, his work, like obviously starting with the early stuff of his, uh, of his horror, horror films, like Scanners and, uh, The Brood is one that I, I really loved for a long time, uh, Videodrome and, uh, and The Fly is like an all-time favorite. I just, uh, that's one of those movies. It's really interesting actually when you like look at The Dead Zone because, uh, The Dead Zone and, uh, Videodrome came out the same year and then then his next film was the fly i've i find it really fascinating that like i feel like the fly is if you if you took videodrome and the dead zone and put them in one of the telepods mm-hmm. <laughs> together like this that would be the movie that would come out would be the fly but we'll we can get to that later um but yeah that's basically my history of uh of Cronenberg and actually I have a fun little side story uh so I I lived in Toronto where he's from uh for about five years and at the time I was working at this uh at this like private school it was like uh kindergarten to grade 12 but one day there was a, a student who was like looking at one of the uh like looking at some books and I approached her to ask if she needed help finding anything and and I noticed she had a uh blood in the snow t-shirt on which is uh like a canadian film festival a uh, horror film festival and i was like oh are you you're into horror and she kind of gave me this look and was like uh yeah and then walked away and i was like "Huh." typical teenage stuff <laughs> i found out later that's cronenberg's granddaughter and his daughter oh, wow. actually went to the school as well um yeah yeah and i was like oh, oh it makes sense and she had like a <laughs> like this giant bat belt buckle on and stuff and um i had this plan to like okay I, i've got to stay at that school until she graduates so maybe if i attend graduation david <laughs> cronenberg will be there and i can shake his hand but uh it didn't end that but then we ended up uh having my my son and we moved back home so but yeah anyway that was my brush with fame <laughs> that's aw-
0: no that's that's an awesome uh awesome anecdote um <laughs> but for me i mean cronenberg was somebody that i came to at a probably far too young an age, and I've mentioned it on the podcast before, like The Fly was my first introduction. And it was on a grainy VHS copy that my grandparents recorded for me off of cable one day. And since I didn't have cable uh, back where I lived, it was like a big deal going to the grandparents' house who lived uh, a handful of states away and getting to kind of like catch up on all the stuff I was missing. But at the time, it was probably 10 years removed from when that movie actually came out. But I just remember, him having me approaching that film with zero context about it, and it begins so harmless, in that it's just yeah, it's two people that are meeting. There's some sci-fi elements with the pod and science and things, and then it kind of just explodes into how um, how comfortable Cronenberg is with introducing horror and especially body horror moments, like that wrist break scene when um, Brundlefly oh, is God. doing arm wrestling in the bar, like. That scene came out of nowhere and it scarred me as a kid for so many years because of how almost flippantly that scene is introduced to the film. And I had never seen anything like that at that point. Like I had seen Alien and I'd seen Terminator, so I had seen violence in movies and things like that, but I'd never seen anything I feel like quite like that that was so shocking and how it kind of just happened so suddenly and then the film moves on from it and doesn't address it again. And
1: it's such a, like, uh, I love the, um, it's this little detail, before the break, you see his, like, hand, his fingers are kind of sinking into the the other guy's hand a little bit, and there's, like, it's, like, weird, whitish, kind of sweaty liquid, it starts to, like, do you, you, you ever, have you noticed that? Like, kind of pools yeah. where his finger is, mm-hmm. and, like, it looks like sweat, but it also looks like, I don't know, I don't know what it looks like. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> We'll leave it at that. And then, of course, his scream after it, after it breaks is just mm-hmm. almost as startling as seeing the bone. like, it just, it's, yeah, that moment is etched into my brain as well.
0: So that was a quality of his filmmaking that I really latched onto from a young age and from my first uh, introduction to him. So I'm curious for you, what really stands out as sort of the elements of Cronenberg-style of filmmaking that separated it from the types of movies you were probably watching at the time? Or perhaps just... Cronenberg as a director as a whole like his approach what really stands out to you um
1: at the time because a lot of his themes are kind of going over my head but I found there's this it was so cold especially as his his early horror films there's just like there's a real lack lack of uh, like I wouldn't say lack of humanity but there's definitely like a pessimism to it and humanity is viewed in a uh, through a lens of pessimism that mm. made me really uncomfortable and then i found the, the older i got because i was i was never really like i've always been kind of a little bit of a luddite i guess i found the older i got and the more i i finally kind of like adapted with the times and adopted technology and and like you know got a smartphone and and technology became more and more of a part of my everyday uh, hour by hour life really uh, the more his films kind of started really striking a chord with me, because I feel like, like the new flesh is this idea that the more we adopt technology, and the more um, it, it the more we adopt technology, the further away from hum- our own humanity we can get. Absolutely. Or, at least that's what his films seem to say. Like mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's kind of uh, I don't know. There's the reality of it is kind of somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Maybe. You know, it's 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 I don't know. It's really interesting. And it's interesting to think that those a lot of those themes are like thirty years before things like social media mm-hmm. had kind of like changed the face of what
0: socializing looked like, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that is something that I definitely take away a lot more from his films, obviously, the older and the I get, is that a lot of the subject matter of his films feels ahead of the time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think I would definitely agree with you that the sort of coldness of a lot of his films and the rather bleak uh, lens in which he explores humans or uh, people with, I think is definitely apparent. And that's actually what really stands out to me about uh, The Dead Zone and what makes that a standout from not only just like his earlier films, but I think his filmography as a whole in that this is a film that feels a lot more restrained in terms of the subject matter that he usually deals with in that we're moving away from the technology aspect, which allows the sort of human aspect, which he doesn't always capitalize on, perhaps as best he could, really Mm -hmm. allows it to shine in a way that I don't know that a lot of his other films necessarily do. And I think that obviously that's part of the reason why is that it's adapted from a Stephen King novel. Um, But I just love that this film feels very un-Cronenberg to me in a way that like, young Jay probably did not like because in finding this film <laughs> after seeing the fly after seeing videodrome and all of these movies i was like well this is nothing like i'm familiar with and yet that's yeah in revisiting the movie you can i can now appreciate it for the ways in which it differs from a majority of his other films from that era definitely
1: and and that's what i find when i when i say that uh, like videodrome and and the dead zone are or the fly is kind of the the bastard son of those two movies because I, I mm-hmm. find that it's the fly has the you know the obviously the the body horror element to it, um, but it also has that like that humanity that you see in the relationship between uh, Brundle and and uh, uh, Gina Davis's character, mm-hmm. and it feels very much in the vein of what you see with uh, Johnny Smith and and I forget his his girlfriend's name. Oh shoot.
0: Uh, Sarah? Uh, Sarah, yeah. And it's one of those things where that is what I love about how the film opens, right? Because the film is really, I find that uh, Jeffrey Boehm wrote the screenplay for it, or he adapted it from Stephen King's, and I really love how the film is broken up, and it's broken up into basically like three acts, right? The first Mm -hmm. act is all about introducing Johnny, Castle Rock, the accident, and then it kind of bleeds into how he uses his newfound powers, he assists the sheriff... Catching the Castle Rock Killer, and then the, fi- the final of the f- or finality of the film is that uh, Greg Stilson, right? The politician that yeah. will inevitably bring about the end of the world. And I really love the way that the film is broken up because it really lets the world building of the dead zone kind of breathe in a way that feels very natural. And it doesn't mm-hmm. feel almost like you're paying attention to a narrative, so to speak. It's more so like you're actually occupying the town that they live in and these events are kind of just flowing organically. I don't know if you felt that way, but that's how I felt that this film differed in a lot of ways from other Cronenberg ones. No, definitely. I definitely felt that way and I find it
1: interesting too. Apparently the uh, the idea for The Dead Zone, if I remember correctly, for King originated with him thinking about, um, I think it was the, the attempted assassination on um, Ronald Reagan. Mm. And him thinking about you know various assassination attempts and how usually the the person who tries to kill whoever they're trying to kill has some sort of delusion and when they're captured the you know no one believes them and he uh, his initial idea was like what if that person was right to be mm-hmm. trying to kill this person which I find you know it's a, it's a, it's it's a fascinating idea but I love the fact that we talk about world building, we don't get the sense that that's the whole point, like, that's the, you know, the initial point where the uh, the story came from. We don't get that sense until, like, the third act. Like, it's not right. something that, I mean, in the book, I suppose we, because I think in the prologue, we first meet Stilson as a, uh, I think he's like a traveling salesman, mm. and uh, he ends up either poisoning or killing a dog, basically mm. out of spite. It's a mm. really, it's a really graphic, graphic scene, um, which is why i really enjoy this this adaptation and and think that this is one of the probably one of the better like uh screenplays to be adapted out of his out of his work because i love this idea that uh, johnny is kind of on this it reminds me a bit of halloween in the sense that like johnny is on this this path that like fate has set him on Mm -hmm. towards stilson right and we kind of get this uh even from, I can't remember when in the first act we first hear Stilson's name, but like we get just like brief little glimpses of this guy kind of coming into uh, Johnny's bubble of kind of uh, understanding, but he has no idea yet how big of a, what's the word I'm thinking of?
0: It almost feels like preordained in that it, ev- yeah. it, like it, by the time he's really truly uh, becomes a player in the third act, it doesn't feel like he's being ham-fisted in or that it's a plot device because... In the film, I believe the first instance that they meet one another is when Johnny goes over to um, meet the the young boy that he's going to tutor. And Stilson happens to be there because the man that's employing Johnny is uh, a donor, a benefactor of some sort. And so they kind of just like briefly meet. They see him on TV and whatnot. And then he kind of disappears for a little bit. And yet, by the time I'm at the end of the film that Stilson really becomes the antagonist of the film, it almost works in a way because it feels like it was natural in how we got from point A to point B, but also I like that the stakes of the film are not immediately the end of the world, right? It begins very subtly, right? The stakes are this guy is with this girl that he loves, they want to get married, this horrible accident happens and the tragedy sets in and he wakes up five years later, he's got these powers. But then when the Castle Rock Killer is introduced, At the end of the day, the stakes are only as high as Castle Rock, right? It's this guy is plaguing this town, killing people. But even if he never gets caught, the violence is contained to this one small location in Maine. But then by the third act of the film and when things have really ramped up, then the stakes, once Johnny has accepted this gift and he's accepted that he can use it for good, that's when the stakes truly grow in that, hey, Hmm. Stilson could, is more than likely going to bring about the end of the world and that natural progression from two people falling in love an accident hey i can stop this killer this local killer and then by the third act the finale the crescendo event is the end of the world i just love how natural that builds and how just gradually it builds right it doesn't start it doesn't go from zero to a hundred it's more uh, nuanced in how it gets there yeah and we even get that
1: brief moment too when, uh, during the press conference, where the reporter asks him, "Well, who do you think is going to win the Senate race? Do you think Stilson's going to win?" And um, it kind of feels like what I was saying earlier about Halloween. I always, I've always kind of seen this like Halloween as uh, like Michael is. He's been compared to a shark in the past, and I guess that that makes sense a little bit. But it's kind of like this trajectory where Lori's at the center, and Michael is just kind of spiraling closer and closer and closer to her until they eventually encounter each other. Mm. And it feels like very early on in the movie, even though we get very very brief glimpses of of Stilson, it feels like he's that that encounters. He's kind of spiraling closer and closer to to Johnny, as um. You know as the, as the film progresses and it's yeah it's pretty fascinating
0: yeah they're orbiting one another and it's just a matter of time before they collide and had the film opened with them meeting right out the gate you would have been like okay i see where this is building but i think that they do such a fantastic job of establishing castle rock establishing the character arc in a way that again feels very natural and i think that that has something to do with again this was an element of the film that i didn't appreciate the first probably two times i watched it but the film begins in a very mundane manner. We get these stills of just like rural New England, right? It's just kind of these this very picturesque little uh, small town. And it's kind of very basic and it's very plain yeah. and there's nothing that stands out about it. I think in one of the stills, like you see kids riding their bike down the street or whatever. And that is so like average and mundane and there's nothing super special about it, but that does such a good job in just establishing Castle Rock. You almost know everything you need to know about that town from the opening moments of the film. And so for it to begin to have such drastic events happen in such a unremarkable place to a certain extent, I mean, for me, that really allows a foundation to grow in a way that it's like, you're a fly on the wall in this small town and you're just kind of observing people going about their days. Mm. And so for it to ramp up from that to these end of the world stakes at the very end of the film, I mean, It's one of those elements that, um, I definitely overlooked as a kid.
1: Well, and it really kind of highlights, uh, Cronenberg and the, uh, screenwriter whose name is, uh, escaping, you know, uh, Boom? Was it Boom?
0: Jeffrey Boom?
1: Yeah, um, how they really understand, like, King thematically, Mm -hmm. because King's all about just, like, ordinary people being thrust into extraordinary situations, like seeing how they can rise to the occasion, or you know what what will come of that, and and uh, I feel I feel like that opening segment or not segment uh, the like the title screen really kind of like you're saying the the shots of of rural New England it really kind of establishes that they 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 get that that's what this story is about um if the, if the story in a way feels almost like a like a superhero story in in a weird sense because it's it's so, it's a an everyday guy whose name is johnny smith which i <laughs> i love cronenberg apparently thought the uh the name was just too laughable and he wanted to change it because he thought no one would ever be named that and uh apparently in the novel king actually acknowledges that that uh you know the absurdity that this guy's name is John Smith. Really hammering home a little on the nose the the fact that this is the everyman. Yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> you know he's he's an everyday guy who gets through tragic circumstances, is given this extraordinary gift that he doesn't want, and every time he uses it, it you know takes something away from him. I guess rises to the challenge <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, saves the day. It feels very much like uh, I don't know, like. Yeah, it feels like a superhero movie in a lot of ways. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, that's a great way to put it, and I think that with Johnny Smith, I mean, with him being such a average person, like it's more believable, right? He's not immediately marred with tragedy. You kind of get a glimpse into what his life is, but what really stands out to me also about The Dead Zone is just how it is such an amalgamation of genres. I would almost be If somebody wasn't familiar with it, I would almost hesitate on how to describe the film in terms of genre. Like, I think what you said was like the superhero um, in an unassuming superhero narrative, right? I think that that's a great way to put it in terms of just like giving somebody a broad understanding of what it is because it does check all those boxes, but obviously it is much more than that once they get into it. And I mean, it's part romance, it's part tragedy. And then you kind of have this psychic supernatural crime and political thriller which i just love how and i think what you had said was correct in how they're able to kind of blend in and out of king's voice in a lot i think this is from what i understand this is much more streamlined than the novel Mm -hmm. but to the degree that it still is able to capture king's voice in a way that it really does strike at the essence sort of of this narrative that the novel uh, of the novel in that it's this every man he inherits these powers through tragedy and then initially he's hesitant like the with great uh, power comes great responsibility type angle and then really does rise to the occasion. And then we just see the occasion kind of escalate in terms of scale. Right. It's very small scale. Then it's the stakes of the world. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting to when you think about uh, when you think every man, do you think of the ghoul like face of Christopher Walken? cuz <laughs> I normally don't, but No. I gotta say, I think this is. I, I mean, I haven't seen every single Christopher Walken film, but of the ones I've seen, I think this is his best, uh, his best role. Because he, I don't feel like he's playing a caricature of himself. Like it feels like a mm-hmm. very, it just feels like a very real person. He really. There's, there's so many moments in the movie. Um, one that springs to mind is when he first wakes up in the in the hospital bed from his from the coma, which like. I read the book in uh, in high school, and the idea of being in a coma for five years in in high school is kind of like ah. Who cares? That's five years. What is five years? It's you know, <laughs> whatever. But like older, being older now, and and watching the movie and thinking like, oh my god, if I lost five years of my life, <laughs> like that's so crushing. And that and you see that on his face when he you know wakes up in the in the hospital um, and he finds out how long he's been out for, realizes the obvious that uh, from his parents that you know his his girlfriend has moved on and is now married. Um, and there's this moment where walk in he just kind of dissolves and Mm. but because of the fact that he's been in a coma for so long it's you know he can't get up and run away he's kind of he's locked in this bed and locked in this body and the best he can do is just raise his arms up to his face and cover his face and just turn away from uh from his parents after receiving this news and just break down and it's such a human moment and it's such a, it's so, it's such a gut punch. And he really nails every one of those scenes where, I guess, where Johnny Smith just gets kicked while he's down. Cause that's what it just feels like for so much of the film is that this is like a good person who just fate just keeps kicking him, you know, kicking at him.
0: Apparently King, I guess his first choice for Johnny was Bill Murray, which I <laughs> do not see at all yeah. and would not have worked. And I think that I, I'm in the similar boat as you in that I'm not super familiar with a ton of Christopher Walken roles, but I feel like this role—it's such a uh, runs the gamut of his abilities as an actor, right? What yeah. he begin, what how he ends the film is not how he begins, and there's real growth there, in a way that I think really taps into Walken. Like at the beginning of the film, he's this kind of awkward, nerdy guy that's like in the over head over heels in love, but like super respectful, doesn't like want to spend the night until marriage and all of these things. And then seeing him deal with, grappling with the reality that his ideal life has been taken from him. And then he kind of recoils and he's almost like a shut and He lives at home with his father now and he won't uh, assist anybody with his powers once he gets out of the hospital and these things. But then seeing him really rise to the occasion and become the hero and almost become an anti-hero up until the like final moments of the film. I mean, it's such a wide range. And then of course we get fantastic lines like the ice is going to break where he just goes like top of the mountain bellowing yeah. Christopher Walken which i love there's
1: still walker walkerisms throughout and yes. uh, but, but what's interesting is they feel earned they're not completely yeah they, they they're not jumps that seem to come out
0: of nowhere the fact that it feels again like i keep using the word restrained because it feels like a film from top to bottom that is very restrained it knows when to use those moments when to use those explosions of rage or grief or worry and these different emotions and it just makes for a very powerful film and it's probably my favorite christopher walken performance and when you pair that with brooke adams as sarah i mean she's She's fantastic as well um and kind of just playing off of him and you really feel like she is equally tortured as he is because the reality is is that they were to get they were going to get married and then this horrible event happens and it seems as if a woman that had to settle and there's nothing more heartbreaking than seeing this person that had to settle and is in a situation now that she can't really leave because it'll blow her life up and yet the man that she truly wants to be with is alive and is right there and they're spending that one magical night together but then that's sort of like just a glimpse at what could have been and that makes that moment of intimacy like when she comes over and they finally have sex with one another but then he's like can I see you again tomorrow and she goes not like today yeah and that's such a heartbreaking moment because it gives him a brief glimpse at what life would have been like had this horrific accident not happened oh
1: my god and even even more than the the thing that gets me even more than the sex is is afterwards when they're sitting at the kitchen table and he's mm-hmm. got Denny on his knee and his dad comes up with the the high chair and they're about to have dinner and You know, the dad puts his foot in his mouth and says it's been a long time since a family sat around this table, which was just like, (laughs) I just cringed at how awkward that must have felt, but it's also Mm -hmm. just like, it's just, it's such a beautiful moment in terms of Smith and Sarah seeing what they could have had and getting to experience that for just one day, but ah, it just gets snatched away, and and I think that's one of the things that's so effective about this movie, too, um, besides how, like, topical it became over the course of the past four years um there's also just this idea that like you know everyone has um things in their life that they regret or like moments where they think like oh things might have been completely different if i had done x instead of y or something like the movie just taps into that very human feeling of of uh regret and wondering what could have been and and the melancholy of that and uh Yeah, I just, oh man,
0: this movie. (laughs) I love though how they're able to send this character through the ringer and yet they're still able to make him be somebody that you should strive to want to be, right? He never goes full kind of like, I'm not going to help anybody. I'm resentful towards God. I believe he says at one point because of the affliction that he's been given him. It's a, somebody says it's a gift and then he says, but no, it's a curse actually. And so- seeing him kind of go through the ringer, but then still rise to the occasion and kind of overcome those things and let bygones be bygones and be like, well, I can still make the most out of what little life, well, not little, but what life I have. I can't let that kind of uh, milestone of five years being taken from me. I can't let that slow me down because if you slow down, what's the point in even waking up from the coma and seeing him kind of ride that until the wheels fall off at the end of the film, I think is really, in a weird way kind of like heartwarming or reaffirming this idea that just because you've gone through hell like keep going this idea that everybody you can make it through anything to a certain extent in terms of just not letting the past drag you down because if you're gonna because you'll end up regretting those that period of time that you spent focusing yeah. on the past instead yeah, of moving and the, forwards in a way.
1: And there's this idea too about the because the movie talks I feel like is very grounded in this idea of fate and I guess it, it really depends on what sort of, like, belief system you have. If you believe in, like, uh, like God or if, like, like, fate. When I think of fate, it's very much an impersonal kind of, uh, almost like clockwork, I guess. Um, so if, when you look at, like, johnny smith and where his life was heading to that moment where he's on the you know in the in the balcony and about to try and take the shot at, at Stilson, it's like well how it's almost like fate is looking at how do you get that person onto that balcony if he if everything had worked out and even if he had this power but he still was able to I don't know uh shack up with Sarah and and she left you know left her husband for him and he got to have that family then he probably wouldn't have ended up on that balcony right it's like fate happened k- kind of knew that it needed to strip everything that he needed everything that what he needed to live for I guess needed to be taken away from him in order to get him up on that balcony with the gun and and get him to do to sacrifice himself apparently you know what I mean
0: yeah, the like gr- the greater good, essentially. But I'm interested in kind of how you think they handled the portrayal of his powers, because again, this is, I was spoiled mm. coming into Cronenberg first. I saw the fly, right? The pinnacle of practical effects. And then I was pretty underwhelmed when I, the first time I saw the film because it is very different from that. And whether it be practical effects or not, the psychic abilities in the film, most of it is kind of just visions of the future, right? There aren't a whole, I think the most sort of overtly psychological kind of horror movie uh, moment is when he has the first vision of the nurse's daughter in the house burning because christopher walken actually appears there in the bed and the girl is crying and then the room is on fire like that's a traditionally like a scary dreamlike moment but then the rest of the film is not necessarily like that it's more the events that he is seeing that are disturbing because of what it entails for the other people or the rest of the world it's not as overtly horrifying so I'm curious how do you think Cronenberg kind of handled the portrayal of those powers I think
1: he it's definitely like his one of his most it's him at his most restrained I guess like it's not body parts falling off or things like that um it feels like a very real human fear in the sense that it's Walken's character is stuck in like the worst moments of a person's life like it's at the you know well it's, it's the last moments of a person's life, which for most of us will probably be pretty shitty. Um, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> and he's watching, and he can't do anything about it. Like you have that that moment at the end of the gazebo scene where he's just he keeps after he snaps out of the, the flashback, he, he he just keeps repeating, you know, like, I I couldn't move, I couldn't do anything, I could, all I did was stand there, and I think that that would be like the worst part of that power is just being privy to that very intimate moment in a person's life and being completely powerless to do anything about it.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I think that like we've been using the word restrained a lot to describe this film and the approach to it. And I think that that scene is indicative of a restrained approach in that it doesn't kind of feel in line with a lot of Cronenberg's usual sensibilities in terms of like these big shocking moments, but... It's a shocking moment I think because of how vulnerable he is and how human of a moment mm. that is in that he's able to capitalize on an emotion or a fear of not being able, of being powerless of not being able to do anything. He's got this special ability and yet all that has done in this situation is let him look in on the final moments of someone's life before they're killed before they're murdered by the uh, Castle Rock killer and for me it's the film capitalizes on these various moments right? It's that or it's the instance when he uses his powers to um, learn something about the reporter that's like grilling him aggressively. But he's able to do that and kind of like shut that guy up, but at what cost? His mother is watching on TV and has a heart attack and eventually dies. And so hmm. you kind of are getting these pluses and minuses, obviously, of like the with great power comes great responsibility. But the toll that that takes and the human toll that takes on somebody, I think is just as frightening as if The Brundle fly comes out of the telepod, but for very different reasons, right? It's two kind of different spectrums of fear. And one, I mean, one of them is overtly terrifying to look at. But at the end of the day, which one are you more likely to encounter someone Mm. viewing like something that's terrifying if you're powerless about or uh, some type of monster right and
1: i guess i mean with the exception of uh you know the dead body that he touches i guess he isn't com- you know completely powerless he's you know it, it he's he's able to uh to save the people by seeing those moments but it it, it would just feel oh uh, man it's it's almost scarier than well no no i often think about what it would be like to be uh seth brundle and to be uh, transforming <laughs> into a fly
0: and and ugh. that would be pretty terrible but i think that while well, it's like in it i gave an apples and orange comparison i think that the idea though that one of them is based in a reality it's applicable to different situations but like everybody's felt powerless at times everybody has had to observe something to various levels of intensity that didn't necessarily sit right with them or something that made them sad or something that occurred that they had no power over changing i would almost equate it to like if you've ever had to go to a funeral right and you're waiting in line to walk up to the casket or something like that right yeah it's a different context but at the same time it's this idea that you're powerless to change this very real situation that's occurring and that situation is getting more and more intense every person that steps uh, ahead of you in line right it's getting Mm -hmm. closer and closer there's nothing you can do about it and this kind of speaks to um johnny smith's character arc again right he feels incredibly powerless in this moment but he's rising to the occasion he's going to see frank dodd's face he's going to lead the sheriff back to frank dodd's house where we have what i think is the most cronenberg moments of the film
1: in oh, terms 100%. of cl- what i
0: would consider classic cronenberg and that being frank dodd instead of just turning himself in or killing himself he kills himself in the most aggressive way you could ever kill yourself
1: yeah, yeah. It's like I'm purposely going to make a big mess for you to clean up. Basically. Yes. Side note: Um, I forget the actor's name now, but the guy who played Frank Dodd, um, was Cronenberg's first choice to play Johnny Smith. Um, oh wow. Yeah, but the student uh, Dino De who uh, I believe produced the film, um, mm-hmm. wanted a like big name actor and also like so cuz the, the the guy's uh he's like a character actor in Canada who's been in like hundreds of things but like might not play that his name's not really going to play that big in the states so <laughs> uh yeah he put the kibosh on that but um
0: well hey he sold that role really well cuz that is probably the most dis- the most overtly disturbing moment of the film where he can't just kill himself with his r- service weapon he has to take a pair of scissors and then It's not even like you don't even see the literal act of it. You see the Mm. moment before and the aftermath, which makes it even more disturbing where he kind of like positions these scissors up and then slowly puts his hands behind his head and then opens his mouth and then just like lowers his face onto this open scissors. And it's I mean, for me, what always stands out is obviously like this guy that just looks almost like he's possessed. He's so nonchalant about the fact he's about to skewer himself on scissors. But yeah he's wearing that creepy leather jacket that he wears and when he's putting his arms behind his head you can hear the leather scrunching and yeah every time I rewatch it that makes my skin crawl more so than it probably like seeing his body at the end of that like twitching just because that's something that you've seen before to a certain extent but like just the little details of like the scrunching leather and then seeing him slowly open his mouth but not really make noise is just oh, super the disturbing. The lack of a scream,
1: and it's <laughs> yeah. those
0: details are perfect. I, I
1: found when they're you get those glimpses of his room, and mm-hmm. it's like hasn't changed since he was a little boy. Like he's even got his uh, he's got his gun belts and everything like draped over. Was it was it a rocking horse? Yeah, it was like a cowboy rocking horse. I believe. Yeah, and there's like cowboy uh, a wallpaper. And, mm-hmm. like, even the the lamps are tiny and stuff, like, it just, it feels very much like you you get this brief glimpse into his brain, um, and how, like, stilted and kind of weird and childlike it is, and, and I just, yep. oh, terrifies me. And it also, that moment where, uh, they first enter the house and the mom's trying to keep them back, and... Uh, Johnny ends up touching her, and then realizing that she knew this whole time. That's a, that's another moment that I found played differently now that I'm a, I'm a parent, because mm. there's this whole before I had a kid, I, I you know a, a scene like that I'd be like, well, why wouldn't you tell the police? <laughs> and now that I have a kid, it's like it's like oh god, th- I, not that I I wouldn't tell the police, but like all of a sudden you just understand how complicated um, things become because of like relationships that you you develop it's
0: ugh. yeah you still understand what she's doing is wrong but at the same time I would I would venture guess you understand the the initial reasoning why perhaps even though it's twisted and distorted in the worst way possible you can at least probably now that you have a kid yourself like you can understand the the initial probably like primal protective nature that she has for her son even if at the end of the day son's a murderer and a rapist and all these things but it's it's like the yeah it's a piece of shit but (laughs) like the primal nature to want to protect again we're talking about characters primal reaction to things it's like yeah that doesn't just go for johnny smith that goes for frank dodd's mother it goes for every character they all react to these very big emotional scenes and moments and things like that and it feels very natural and i mean The first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, it's pretty played out. Like, why would she she would why wouldn't she tell the police? But it's like in getting older, even not having kids, I guess, like watching enough crime shows or movies or whatever, you're like, oh, I can at least identify some semblance of a human there. Right. She calls Johnny a devil. And it's like initially you probably view her as a devil, but it's like at some level she still has to be human. And that's the element that kind of explains or provides some context to that decision. And then one last note about that, that whole sequence. I love the
1: lighting. The lighting is so different oh, from yeah. just about every other scene in the film, but that, that I don't know why there's like a green light in the hallway, mm-hmm. but it looks fantastic.
0: <laughs> yeah. It kind of made me think about his earlier films from like the seventies. I don't know why, maybe it's because it's the green tint, but it made me think yep. of like Shivers or Rabbit, just Definitely because Shivers, it's kind of yeah. like, it's kind of like reminiscent of the lighting that was in the apartment building, uh, apartment complex in Shivers. Um, yeah which, I don't know, maybe that was the one scene where Cronenberg was like, hey, man, the rest of this movie doesn't necessarily rem- resemble a lot of my sort of stylistic choices and whatnot, but this one scene, like, if we're going to give me an inch, I'm going to take I'm gonna take a foot or something. Just <laughs> This is my yeah, bad. that scene screams Cronenberg to me in a way that makes it super memorable, but it also makes me appreciate the rest of the film, because... That shows, again, it shows in a tremendous amount of restraint to not make every single. You can have one moment that's like your previous films, but you're not going to make the entire thing that. It really shows growth in a way that I appreciate every time I rewatch this. Mm. But I think, in kind of like getting into that third act when Greg Stilson becomes the true antagonist of the film, right? We finally arrive at that and how he has that vision of Greg Stilson is going to unjustly commence World War III, essentially, when. He gets that vision of uh, Stilson threatening to shoot. I think it's supposed to be the general or secretary of defense where he's like, you're going to put your hand on this uh, on this like nuke reader to launch the missiles or I'm going to cut it off or something to that extent. And then, yeah, that random general, Yeah, that random general. And then as soon as he launches the missiles, the other like chiefs of staff show up and they're like, hey, we have a diplomatic solution to this. And he's like, the missiles are flying, gentlemen.
1: (laughs) I had a vision while I was sleeping and I woke up and it it's a little absurd, like I wish I knew. I can't remember now how that plays out in the book, that that moment. Um, but it's still
0: like, I don't know. It's still great. Do you still find that whole persona of Stilson to be absurd? Here's the thing. With if if
1: this was if it was five years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. But after watching Donald Trump be in office for four years, yeah, it's all this. All of a sudden, it's incredibly terrifying to to, to realize that like Stilson really isn't that far fetched of a character. Yeah. I just meant more of a staging of that scene, but like right. the character himself, mm-hmm. especially. I found that that mo- the um when when uh, Johnny's watching him on television and he's having that that rally with like the. He's doing the. He starts off doing the push-ups, and then yeah. he just hops up. And not that Trump could ever do a single push-up to save his <laughs> life, but the way he starts working that crowd up mm-hmm. into a lather, it just yeah. felt very reminiscent. And man, Martin Sheen really kills it in this yeah. film. Like he, there, I yeah. God, he's good.
0: No, he's fantastic. And I think that, yeah, I would agree with, I wasn't trying to uh, misrepresent what you had meant, but like, yeah, that scene still feels sort of um, ridiculous, right? This idea that it's one man between launching the nukes and there's nobody (laughs) else in that. Like that whole scenario is very kind of far-fetched outside the realm of reality, but Stilson as a whole, especially with, like, I saw this for the first time literally five years ago, Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Well, this character is a clown. This is compl- this is so over the top. I don't really think that the end of this movie is as strong as the beginning portion of the film." And it might sound like a stretch, but five years later, after this whole Trump presidency, that whole scene with him watching him on uh, seeing Stilson on TV, doing the push-ups, wearing the hard hat, talking about how. Um, every you guys are all out of work this is the government's fault like demonizing other politicians uh talking about growing an army of people to volunteer to work for me oh, and like God. getting back to basics and even that scene where he's threatening the journalist uh for running for writing an op-ed it's not even a in-depth um sort of like damning account of something he said or something he wrote or a picture even it's you're writing an op-ed that speaks negatively about me. It's just your opinion. And seeing how he basically implies to have this guy blackmailed and killed if he doesn't change it, like that played out very differently the first time I saw it than now where the performance is frightening now rather than it being a caricature of people other than the whole nuke scene. And they, th- th- what's
1: almost even more frightening is is, like comparing Trump to Stilson is like with Stilson you can I don't want to say you can understand why people would vote for him but they're like you see how he manipulates people and you see how he connects to people from blue-collar backgrounds or you know what I mean but the reality of Trump it's like he manages to to, he manages to do everything that Stilson does but he's a completely unrelatable person like piece of shit human being yeah. who managed yeah. to somehow fail his way up to like the the most important job in the world, yeah. and it's utterly terrifying.
0: Yeah, if anything, it makes uh, Stilson more frightening because there are more people like Stilson out there probably that could pull off that sort of like facade of being one of these blue collar people than there are of people like Trump that get this one in a lifetime opportunity. And not to like draw too many comparisons, but at the same time, like it it is a reality and it's i can't obviously it was not intentional when he wrote this book when was this written in the 70s
1: uh yeah i think it was like 78
0: yeah late 70s but now in revisiting it it really is a true and to martin sheen's credit like he sells it so incredibly well this idea that this guy is smiling to all the masses and selling them a bunch of bullshit when he's got like his fingers crossed behind his back essentially and it's a incredibly eerie and super disturbing. And more so those more subtle moments of him just putting on a show, I find to be more frightening than the whole, I'm going to launch the nukes thing, because at the end of the day, one of them is more likely to happen. Let's say he didn't end up launching the nukes, but he could manipulate an entire group of people into getting him elected. And then he could have, maybe the stakes are lowered, but he could still have a negative impact on the country or the world in the way that it's not all that different than we've just gone through in uh, in the States over here.
1: Yeah, Sheen, I, I feel like he, he really nails the, uh, the... He has that manic quality mm-hmm. that's tied into Stilson's ambition. That is really frightening, because Stilson has the ambition and he has absolutely no conscience. And the, the combination of those two things, uh, Sheen really does a fantastic job of just kind of bringing to life... And for and he's barely in the film, it feels like it's he's he's yeah. got maybe like
0: I don't know fifteen, twenty minutes of screen time maybe or um, which speaks to the volume of his performance, right He's not in that yeah. much of the movie and yet as soon as you finish the movie, I thought was thinking about his performance because of how impactful it is, even if it's not in a great deal of it. And he really does come in at the perfect time. and I think that much like Johnny's arc throughout the entire film is very gradual. Tillson's, to a certain extent is gradual in a way that he almost sneaks up on you to a certain extent you might almost just miss who his character is even though he's larger than life right the way they meet uh inconsequentially like in a hallway at a mutual acquaintance's home and then he mm-hmm. gives him the the uh vote for tilson uh tillerson uh whatever button and then he's yeah. just on his way and then you don't see him for another 10 minutes after seeing him on tv and it's so inconsequential of a meeting that. You almost forget about him for a second until you look out Johnny's door and there's like the billboard with his face on it that's like twenty feet tall or something like that. But yeah. it is a remarkable performance.
1: It's creepy to think of as as uh, Johnny's arc is happening and every you know, his as as things are ramping up for him, you, you think it's creepy to think about what are we not seeing that's happening of Stilson? Like how does he get to this position? How does he how does he build this momentum? Um that almost like surely would have resulted in him becoming a member of the Senate. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, oh. and how many of those
0: people are out there today? <laughs> well, that's the thing. One, if you look at like the stakes, if you readjust the stakes, they can have con- dire consequences for large numbers of people, even if it doesn't bring about world war three. But, um, I really, really love the ending of this film because just as Johnny gets the moment to fire on Tillerson, you don't end he doesn't end up being the person that kills him, right? It ends up Tillerson ends up killing himself because of course he grabs Sarah's baby, uses it a human shield, that gets reported in the media, and then his chances of political office are of course kaput. And so him having to turn the gun on himself actually is a more satisfying ending I find than Johnny having to do it, right? Because at the end of the day yeah. also, Johnny doesn't die a villain in the viewer's eyes at least, right? If he kills Tillerson the discussion is open that he is a uh, anti here. He's a vigilante, but if he doesn't actually shoot him, is he the vigilante or an evil character at the end of the day? Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and I'm trying to remember now in the book, if he, I can't remember if he kills him in the book or, or not.
0: I knew I should have reread it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think it's equally as powerful because not only does Johnny not have to be the one that ruins Tillerson, he gets to have that sort of like, spit in his face, be like, yeah, you're done. But then he also gets that moment with Sarah, right? Where Sarah, they embrace one last time and then he dies in her arms essentially. And it's bittersweet again, but at the end of the day, it's probably the best case scenario for him. Just because if he keeps using his powers, we see throughout the film, it takes something away from him and he's like, this is killing you. But then they don't necessarily address that again for the rest of the film. Well, I kind of thought, yeah.
1: I got this idea that because uh, when the the doctor comes after he gets his own place, and the doctor comes and tries to give him more pills, and uh, says, you know, these will these will help you, and and Johnny almost seems to let on that he knows that things aren't good, that because mm-hmm. the headaches are coming more and more often. Yeah. Um. So it's almost like he gets this. He, it's it almost makes it so that like the decision to do what he does. Is almost a no brainer. Like right. it's at this point where it's like, Well, you know, I've lost my relationship, that whole future is gone. I'm dying anyway. I just found Hitler too <laughs> and, and like what else am I gonna do? Right. I'm not gonna kill him, like I'm not gonna
0: <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Yeah. He very much has the arc of somebody that like learns that they're terminally ill. Right. And that's kind of what I assumed was the implication. They didn't necessarily touch upon it again in the film, but I always interpreted that as like, he is dying and he's used his powers to the point of no return. So it's like, okay, now from what I've learned, I need to go down this road. And like you were talking about fate earlier. And that's essentially the big moment where it's like, do you sacrifice one life for the lives of many? And that's kind of the uh, moral quandary that he gives to his doctor, where he's like, Would you go back in time and kill Hitler? And I love his doctor's line. He's like, Well, I love people and my life is dedicated to saving them. So, yeah, I would shoot the son of a bitch. Like, <laughs> that's one of my favorite lines in the movie because it really, it, for starters, it's not an example of a character being like holier than thou. He doesn't like, Oh, I'm a doctor. How dare you ask me that kind of like that whole kind of shtick. It's more, he's a realist, right? Even yeah. just because he's a doctor who saves people. At the end of the day one life to save many or to save thousands or millions and all of these things it really is a interesting quandary that can be applied to a more modern context when this film takes place
1: and that doctor was great by the way i love that actor yeah. i can't remember his uh, his name now but
0: yeah his doctor sam Wizek, who's played by uh, herbert lom really does a fantastic job of being the pr- sort of like middleman between The Dead Zone and Christopher Walken to a certain extent, like trying to help him understand this very supernatural event in kind of just for the period, like modern medicine, which a lot of what he's saying is almost like the role of being a psychiatrist and kind of like helping Mm -hmm. him to understand the implications of something that he himself does not understand. And I love their relationship throughout the course of the film.
1: Yeah, yeah, he has some really great kind of like deadpan humor. Yes, moments too, which I I thought were pretty fun. And I think that that moment where he uh calls his he calls his mother without mm-hmm. like, you know calls him, tracks down the number and then calls yep. her and he plays that so well that uh instance where he's just he he hears her voice and he just can't bring himself to say anything to her. Is uh
0: Yeah, what does he say to Johnny? He says it wasn't meant to be. And that yeah. line is really what kind of like essentially can, to a certain extent, helps Johnny to, kind of put aside what he has lost in those five years. It wasn't meant yeah. to be, and so now that he's found this new trajectory that his life is taking, whether it be fate or otherwise, I think that that line really resonates in terms of just his character arc, and it speaks volumes of the way that the rest of the film plays out, and it shows how important the Doctor is in his life. Right. I think it could have been very easy to have his doctor just be, I'm the guy that helps you get out of the bed and gets back the full function of your legs again. But in reality, like I love that he pops up later in the film and he essentially helps push. Maybe it's fate. Maybe he's the reason that that speech that he gives him about, or his answer for Hitler is that, Hey, I have to push this guy in the direction, whether it's, he knows that or not
1: yeah because he you you can kind of get the sense that he's you know he's not stupid he he knows that he's asking that question for a reason
0: and i love that that all, none of the care nothing about these characters and their interactions feels like it's wasted again for like a movie that is almost two hours long i find this movie is incredibly brisk just the pacing mm-hmm. of it everything feels very purposeful maybe the journalist scene is uh is a little doesn't really add a whole lot we already know that uh, Tillerson is kind of like this scumbag that's willing to threaten and hurt people and all these things. But overall, I think the film does such a great job of just utilizing every minute of screen time in a way that makes it, uh, like you had said, a kind of a dark horse in terms of Cronenberg's uh, underappreciated works.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think this movie, too, looking at Cronenberg's uh, filmography, it feels a little bit like kind of the precursor to some of his more character-driven movies that he would uh, he would make later on in like the early aughts like A History of Violence and Eastern Promises and The Dangerous Method um, you know obviously it has that supernatural element of John Johnny being a psychic and, and, and whatnot but it has a warmth to it that not, I mean <laughs> his movies are always going to be kind of cold <laughs> Yeah. but it felt like as he got a little older um, he he became more interested in kind of human relationships
0: I would say that from what I've seen of his early filmography, I don't go to his, I don't return to his films because of necessarily the characters and their relationships, other than like The Fly. I think that's one of the big exceptions. And it's very telling that The Fly came after The Dead Zone, which I think is his most character-driven and warmest work uh, in that period of films. And then you have The Fly, which really does capitalize the best of both worlds, right? The practical horror that he's known for, but also this new facet of his that has more of an attention to relationships, to having characters that feel like people, because I just Mm -hmm. revisited Shivers and Rabid, and those are two films that I think, again, they're like early Cronenberg body horror practical effects, but none of those characters I feel anything for or return to those films or have any sort of fondness in terms of like well-developed characters or relationships or anything like that. Those films I go in 100% with, I want to see some disturbing, like sex frenzied body horror stuff that (laughs) Cronenberg's known for because that's what he like cut his teeth on early in the day. And the works from the eighties that really capitalized on what he spent the 2000s doing, like you said, a history of violence, Eastern promises, these more character driven films, I would go towards either the fly or probably the dead zone. This is one of those films that I think definitely requires uh, multiple viewings just in terms of the shock of it being sort of foreign to Cronenberg mm-hmm. style, but then in revisiting it and getting an appreciation for it, you start to see, no, this is just him sort of expanding upon his tool set in a really interesting way. Yeah,
1: I, I would love to see this get a uh, a, re- a re-release from like Scream Factory or Arrow or oh, one of those boutique, because uh, I, I really think once once that happens, you've kind of heard little bubblings here and there on on certain shows of people kind of being like, oh, wow, I've I, completely forgot about uh the Dead Zone being a, a great film. But I think once it gets that re-release, maybe it'll start getting the I don't know, the do that it deserves. Absolutely.
0: Have you ever seen the T V
1: series that they adapted into? I did. I saw maybe like a few episodes way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um and I remember liking it all right. I mean I feel like that's it kind of the premise kind of lends itself well to like a serialized story because I, yeah. I do think that one of the my, my favorite part of the movie is the kind of the middle act with uh with Dodds and I love that uh it becomes a little bit of a police procedural at some mm-hmm. point. Um so I always thought that would be kind of cool, like having CSI but with Johnny Smith, you know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> no yeah. I don't know if the show went that way, but <laughs> I think that it, that lends its that premise lends itself to the serialized or the sort of like police procedural stuff that could be really interesting. And seeing the way, of course, how long can you keep that up, and how can you evolve on the storytelling aspect of these powers that are very sort of like finite, right? They're very easily definable, and like, what is the limit of them? What happens if he continues? to use the powers that might be an interesting angle but of course i i don't have time to watch three uh three seasons of a show from early 2000s but anyway <laughs> but uh it's cool that it exists hey who knows but uh yeah. hey man as always this was a blast talking uh, the dead zone with you and i appreciate your uh, your insight into film oh gosh uh, insight you're too kind uh, <laughs> thanks for having me on i really appreciate it if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit, and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.